Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Olivia Swack Goldman, Executive Director of the Wildlife Justice Commission, an organization dedicated to stopping the plunder and illicit trade in wildlife. We talk about how the Wildlife Justice Commission launches investigations and hearings to make the case against high-level wildlife traffickers, and in particular, the Commission's recent success in conjunction with the governments of China and Nigeria. Finally, we talk about the need for governments everywhere to get more serious about fighting wildlife trafficking, since it's a major source of revenue for transnational criminals who are also involved in drug and human trafficking and other crimes, and because of the horrendous cost it puts upon the global environment. I hope you find the podcast informative and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it's my pleasure to be here today with Olivia Swack Goldman, who is the Executive Director of the Wildlife Justice Commission. Olivia, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm going to start with those kinds of obvious questions to set the stage for our whole discussion. And that obvious question is, can you talk briefly about what Wildlife Justice Commission, what that is, uh, what it does, and you know, its mission and how you accomplish that mission? Sure. So the Wildlife Justice Commission was created in 2015 to create a new kind of accountability mechanism for wildlife crime. The idea behind it was we have these massive crimes that are occurring that are devastating our biodiversity, yet there's no international body that's able to adjudicate it, and national systems often aren't doing the job quite as well as they need to be doing. So in order to help these national systems, they created the Wildlife Justice Commission as a nonprofit. So we're based in The Hague, the Netherlands, the city of peace and justice, but we operate globally. So we have teams all over the world, and we go after the high-level criminals that are organizing and facilitating wildlife crime, which is, as you know, the fourth largest transnational organized crime. So there's huge amounts of resources that are being generated for criminal networks. And we try and address those criminal networks going after them wherever they are across the supply chain, with the goal being that we change the dynamic of wildlife crime from being a low risk, high reward. So the criminals are thinking twice about engaging in it and we can help protect our biodiversity. And when you say go after them, I'm kind of familiar. You have investigations and public hearings. How does that process work? What does it mean going after the traffickers, the high-level traffickers? So the way that we operate, my colleagues and I are all either former law enforcement or intelligence officers or prosecutors. And what we do is we use the tools and techniques that we use to address other forms of organized crime and apply it to wildlife crime. So we are doing intelligence-led investigations, really using this intelligence analysis to lead the teams. And we do that by, first we decide which cases to go after, and that's based on two issues. One is the most vulnerable species. So those species that are either at point of extinction or that they're being massively trafficked and law enforcement hasn't been effective in addressing them. And then we go after the most impactful offenders. And the way we know that is through this intelligence analysis. And then we conduct intelligence-led investigations. So we collect information, we analyze it, turn it into intelligence, 
work with law enforcement, help them to collect the evidence that they need in order to bring successful prosecutions. And in fact, we've had a 100% conviction rate of all the cases that we've helped governments to bring. So we're really proud of the way that we do that. Another thing that we do is we work with governments in terms of intelligence analysis more broadly. So on the one hand, our intelligence development unit is working with our teams, our investigators, and our undercover agents to help point them in the right direction and having a feedback loop. But also independently, they're analyzing the trends that are happening globally on wildlife crime so that policymakers and others have a much better sense of what's happening in the world of wildlife trafficking so that they can be much more effective. I think you've just completed work that involved ivory trafficking, uh, the exploitation of elephants in Nigeria. And this is a, an investigation that involved Nigeria, China. Can you tell me specifically about that? Sure. So what we do is we collect information and then we work with the governments to turn that into actionable intelligence. So in this case, we were working with the Nigerian Customs Agency in order to help them investigate a criminal network that is believed to be responsible for more than 50% of the seizures of ivory and pangolins since 2018. So a really, really important trafficking network that's working on the link, the Africa-Asia network, and particularly on pangolin and ivory. So we worked with the authorities to help them arrest the individuals, and then also to look at their phones, to analyze the information in order to build a really strong case against these individuals. So it's important that we're able to not only seize illegal product, but also to bring strong cases, have arrests. And eventually what you also want to do is to, to have the assets that are generated and to do reparations. So that's another thing that's becoming more and more to the forefront. Well, that seems really important to be able to do reparations. Anything that you particularly discovered with regard to the ivory and the pangolin trafficking and why it was happening and lessons for going forward? What's interesting is that we noticed a couple of years ago this shift from East Africa to West Africa and the role of Nigeria becoming more and more important in the transportation of illegal wildlife. So as governments step up their enforcement, crime displaces. So we were seeing Nigeria come up more and more regularly on seizures and, and indications with our, our conversations with high-level traffickers. So we knew that we needed to be paying attention to what was happening in Nigeria. And we were able to work really closely with the Nigerian Customs Service in order to get these individuals arrested and now they're in the process of being prosecuted. But it was really important that we were able very early on to see this shift to Nigeria and also to see this shift in terms of including pangolin scales in the shipments with ivory on their way to China. And this is important because when you're looking at the containers, when you're looking at the concealment methods, pangolin is now very often being mixed in with ivory because it's kept its value better. When the Chinese authorities initiated an ivory ban, domestic ivory ban in December 2017, the price of ivory has gone down because the traffickers are nervous about it. The Chinese authorities have really stepped up their enforcement on ivory. So they're adding in pangolin scales in order to make the shipments worth it. So that's also a really important thing that we were able to notice in advance and then also give the authorities the indications that this was happening. Well, this leads to this question that I, I think when you start to do these investigations, this incredible connection to transnational crime organizations. And a lot of that I gather in some of the documents that you've talked about, your May 2021 report on crime conversions, talks about how much of that evidence is still largely anecdotal. 
I guess that leads to all sorts of questions. How can we make this connection to large organized crime organizations? This is one of their enterprises. How can we make that connection more clear? What kind of intelligence sharing is needed, for instance, to identify that connection? Right. Well, and that's a great question because that's something we focused on quite a bit, as you mentioned it in our report in May of 2021. But the reason we did that report was because we were talking to some stakeholders and they said, you know, people mention there's this convergence of wildlife crime with other forms of organized crime, but no one's put a report out and no one's documented. So it must not exist. For me, that was like a red flag. So I said, all right, guys, let's pull together what we have and what we can find, at least to have some kind of documentation about it. And there is, has been some great research done on that, including by Edgardo Buscaglia, who is on our independent review panel. He's a professor at Columbia and has worked with organized crime authorities around the world and documented a tremendous amount of that. But what we tried to do was pull together examples that have been documented, whether through our own investigations or through other investigations and cases where you've seen this link between wildlife crime and other forms of organized crime. There's several different ways that this manifests itself. On the one hand, you have kind of embedded crime, whereas wildlife crime wouldn't be there without corruption, without fraud, without money laundering. These are essential parts of the criminal aspects of wildlife crime. You can't get shipments out unless you're either bribing somebody or you have fraudulent documents or you steal legitimate documents from a third party. So that kind of fraud is essential. The corruption is there, whether it's high level, low level, throughout, you need that corruption in order to have the supply chain work. And then money laundering, obviously, with the proceeds of the crime, they need to somehow turn it into money that they can use. So those are kind of embedded, if you will. Then you have wildlife crime that's linked to other types of related crimes. So a criminal network that's engaged also in trafficking of live pets, as well as parts of pangolin scales and rhinos, but also timber. So they're a little more broad than just working on, on wildlife crime, for example. And then you have several examples where you have networks that are operating in several different fields. So they either switch into human trafficking or they need human trafficking in order to facilitate their traffic. We had an example of a network that had human trafficked individuals into the forest in order to harvest protected timber. So and in fisheries crime, you'll often see that as well, human trafficking being involved. Some criminal networks engage also in drugs. This maybe they think is slightly safer for them to get away with the wildlife as opposed to the drugs. So you see a lot of different ways that criminal networks, because in the end, they're doing it because it, they think it's easy to get away with and they can generate a lot of income. So they're not doing it because they don't like the animals. They're doing it because they think as an entrepreneurial criminal, this is a good way that I should be spending my resources. We found it really important to document this and to show that this kind of linkage is occurring in a variety of different ways, also as a way to raise the prioritization of addressing wildlife crime. So we call this, and others have called it as well, the soft underbelly of organized crime. So if you can get in via the wildlife aspects, you're going to be able to get into these networks in a way that maybe is slightly easier than if you get in through the drug side, where they're perhaps slightly more sophisticated. So it's an important way to, on the one hand, get into the networks slightly easier, and on the other hand, to show why it's important to address wildlife crime for agencies that may have other priorities. I think that's a really good point. I mean, uh, you know, this is one way to go after transnational criminals that may be slightly easier. But in fact, 
low prosecutions traditionally or historically with regard to wildlife trafficking, fines, plea bargains. Is it 11% of the cases get followed up or something? I, I was looking at some numbers in preparation for this, and I'm sure you probably know them, but very low pursuit by prosecutors. And so, A, maybe you can talk about how, particularly given the connection to organized crime, why is that? Is that corruption? Is that people aren't taking wildlife trafficking seriously enough? How do we deal with that? Right. And that's a great point. And traditionally, wildlife crime has seemed to be an emerging crime. And yet it's it's not emerging. It's there. It's you know worth about $23 billion a year. It's the fourth largest transnational organized crime. The impact of wildlife crime together with illegal of IUU fishing and timber is estimated to be you know, one to two trillion by the World Bank. So it's just a tremendous amount of resources. And it's also having incredible devastation to our biodiversity. We're at risk of losing a million species in the coming decade, according to the IBIS report. And one of the causes of that is wildlife trafficking. Plus, of course, it has an impact on climate change because you need healthy ecosystems. And if you take out certain portions, for example, apex predators or ocean health, you're going to impact that as well as human health, as we've seen with zoonotic diseases and rule of law, et cetera, and the link with corruption. So it's not because it's not important. I think governments haven't prioritized it sufficiently because they haven't realized that it affects them. This is a global problem. It's not specific to one region. It's not only Africa, Asia, it's global. And I think governments need to recognize that and see where they fit in to this supply chain, if you will, of wildlife crime. There has become slightly more attention paid to wildlife crime within sort of multilateral fora and linking corruption, whether it's the UN General Assembly Special Session on Corruption or the UN Convention on Corruption that had an, a discussion on this as well. So there are ways to increase the attention to it and the prioritization, but it's not happening enough. And that's why we came out with this recent report that we just launched yesterday, in fact, on the Chinese case, which is a blueprint for how to successfully investigate a transnational organized network that is conducting wildlife crime. It took them seven years to invest. It was a criminal network that it was engaged in trafficking ivory from Africa to China for seven years at least. And the investigators, they took several years to investigate. They used advanced investigative techniques. They did financial investigations. Um, they did lifestyle analysis. They looked at all the documentation. They did the follow the money. They did all the things that governments should be doing to be bringing down these networks. So it's really a great example of how it can be done. And I'd just like to encourage other governments to do that as well, because very often the approach stops at the seizure. So there are very few follow-on investigations. And even when there are follow-on investigations, there are very few financial investigations that are tied to it. And that's such an impactful way to map the network and to get documentation and evidence of what has happened. Well, that leads to something that I think that's near and dear to the hearts of uh, many of, in the audience, in this audience that hears these podcasts, and that is financial institutions, the requirement that they report suspicious activities. You know, how helpful is that? What could be done to make it even more helpful? But how helpful is that in identifying wildlife traffickers? And again, how could it be enhanced perhaps or made stronger? Well, I think the requirement to report suspicious activities related to wildlife crime is incredibly important. On the one hand, it's important because it raises the prioritization of looking for these issues. I know financial institutions have a lot going on. They have a lot of priorities. So these kinds of requirements to have them report on this is really important because then they're thinking about it. They're aware of it. They're looking for it in a way that they might not otherwise. 
And I think that what we've seen, Vincent came out with a report in December noting that the suspicious activity reports related to wildlife crime had gone up significantly in the last year and on track to do more so. So again, as we become more attuned to this issue, we're going to be finding more of it. And therefore, it's going to be making it harder for the criminals to get away with their illegal activity and to misuse the financial system to do so. So it's a really important tool that we have. And I'm thrilled that it's being used increasingly by governments to help address wildlife crime. So we have touched on this a couple of times throughout our conversation, but I don't know if there's anything more that you can say about tackling the corruption aspect of this, or there's something that people should understand about the corruption aspect of this. seems like you have a lot of common cause with some of the big anti-corruption global NGOs and things. But again, anything more to be said about political corruption, how we attack that as something that facilitates international wildlife trafficking? Addressing corruption is absolutely essential to addressing wildlife crime. So I I completely agree that we have a lot in common with some of the organizations focusing on corruption. And what's important is to be able to document that corruption. And that's where intelligence analysis can really help and the financial analysis can. For example, in the China case, they found one corrupt official in China. And there were some discrepancies in the ledgers between what the criminals had in their correspondence and what the individual had in his bank account. And Because of that, it made it clear that there were other corrupt officials along the supply chain. So using those kind of tools and techniques to address these issues will help to weed out the corrupt elements. And then obviously we need to go after them as well. And it's important that governments cooperate with other governments, that there's a sharing of intelligence so that they're able to support each other and bring strong cases. Because it's a global problem, as I mentioned, and criminals don't respect borders. So we need to be really strong all across the globe if we're going to be effective. Finally, I think in in summing up, and we have touched on this a little bit throughout too, but just in summing up, international wildlife trafficking does seem to be a, a tertiary concern for governments at best and for law enforcement agencies. How do we change that? I think it's so important, the idea that this is, as you say, the soft underbelly of organized crime, the fact that it causes such destruction to the environment. I know you're not a political advocacy organization, but how do we make this more front and center for governments and for people throughout the world? Well, that's the million dollar question because that is so important. Governments have finite resources and they have to choose where to put them. And we need to have wildlife crime top of the agenda. So one way of doing that is to show them the benefits of doing this, right? The, the, the loss, whether it's financial to livelihoods, rule of law that comes, climate change from wildlife crime, the loss of our biodiversity, and then also the benefits they can get from it. So missed tax revenue, seizing of assets, all of that can really help them to see the value of it. And then you involve several different agencies that it's not only the environmental authority, for example, but that you're involving the organized crime police, that you're involving the FIUs and the customs agencies, tax agencies, so that they're all working together in a coordinated and holistic way to address these crimes because they all see the value of doing so. Not only just for you know the value of our planet, which in and of itself is really, really important, but also for achieving their own strategic objectives. Well, Olivia Swack-Goldman, Executive Director, Wildlife Justice Commission, thank you so much for spending time today talking about these things. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Olivia Swack-Goldman, Executive Director of the Wildlife Justice Commission. I hope you found what you heard compelling and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, 
Amazon, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.